Welcome to Wallachia. My name is David Ely, and I'll be your author and narrator. I love serialized stories. I read monthly comics, I devour TV shows, I like podcasts like The Adventure Zone, I like tuning in each week or month to get a new part of a story, then having some time to think about that particular installment and anticipate the next one. Somewhere along the line, I got interested in the Penny Dreadful. In the mid-19th century, you could go to a newsstand and for a penny pick up a copy of Sweeney Todd or Varney the Vampire, and while most of them weren't that good, the idea of these little newsprint stories coming out has a sort of cool appeal to me. So a few years ago, I was thinking about this stuff while reading an old Fantastic Four story featuring Doctor Doom, ruler of the fictional Eastern European nation of Latveria, and it called to mind Dracula by Bram Stoker. As much as I like that novel, it's the story of the Count packing his bags to leave Transylvania for London, and I always felt like I wanted more of the Transylvania stuff. Why is his castle in ruins? Why is he there all alone with no servants? Do his people know that he's a vampire? And a story started brewing in my head. Let's go back several decades earlier to a time when Count Dracula is still a respected local lord with a small army of guards and villagers who adore him. So that's how Wallachia got started. I invented a village in Wallachia, which was a country just south of Transylvania that became Romania, and started filling out a story for the people living there. As I did, I also had ideas for this, like, double prequel based on the myth of Persephone and set 75 years before Wallachia and 150 years before Dracula. So the next six installments of this podcast, you'll hear Flowers of Transylvania, a prelude to Wallachia. It'll tie in eventually to the main story. Lastly, Wallachia exists as this podcast and also as an ebook app you can download from the iOS app store for free. New chapters of the story come out every two to three weeks, so you're welcome to listen here on this podcast or download the app and get caught up there. There are six chapters of Flowers Transylvania and six, soon to be seven, chapters of Wallachia out. I'll be releasing this podcast every other week starting from the beginning, so it'll be behind the main story for a little while. You can find out more at wallachia.net or, if you can't spell that, vampirebook.net. And you can follow me on Twitter at DaveXtreme and Wallachia at Wallachianet. Okay, here comes the first chapter of Flowers of Transylvania. I think I've gotten a little bit better at reading these, so please bear with me on the first few that I recorded earlier in the year. Flowers of Transylvania by David Ely Chapter 1. The Princess of Springtime On the first day of spring in 1723, in a village in Transylvania that's no longer there, something wonderful came into the world. In a small farmhouse against a backdrop of lush, green mountains, Demetria gave birth to Karina. The village women who had served as midwives handed her to Demetria, then went outside to deliver the good news to the father, Jason. A basket of small stones had been gathered by the village children for reasons in equal measure to give them something to do and to help ward off evil spirits. The men who had assembled to wish Jason well each took a stone and, tossing it over their shoulders, said this into the jaws of the Strigoi. Then they clapped Jason on the back, sent him inside to greet his new daughter, and among themselves arranged a schedule of who would watch over the baby until she was baptized, to ensure no restless spirit could bring her harm. A few minutes later, after the baby had a chance to try nursing, Demetria was given time to rest, and Jason was given the baby to hold. It was then that he told baby Karina the first lie she'd ever hear. I promise I'll never let anything happen to you. It's the lie that every father who's ever held his newborn baby has told, a promise every father has made that he knows he can't keep. And Jason knew it, but he told the lie anyway. Sitting there, holding that tiny baby with her miniature features and her little feet attached to delicate ankles, Jason had a realization. While he would do everything he ever could to protect that baby, that wasn't the real job of being a father. 
His real job was to help her grow into a person who could learn to use the gifts she'd been given by God, to teach her to use those gifts and make good choices and enrich the world. Yes, his job was to protect her, but more, it was to plant her in the sun, give her lots of water, and let her sprout and grow into what she was meant to be. As a girl, Corina was the joy of the village. Sweet, charming, bright-minded, she raised everyone's spirits just by entering a room. Crops seemed to grow and flourish anywhere she stepped. A neighbor who had been having a bad day would look up to find Corina coming down the road with a bouquet of wild roses that she'd picked from the bush outside her house just because she'd happened to be thinking of her. By custom, any of the girls turning 18 that year might have been chosen to be the year's spring princess, but there was little question that the council would choose Corina, and little jealousy among her friends. A harvest prince had also been chosen from among the eligible young men, but their pairing was merely ceremonial. In the fall, there would be a big harvest festival over which the prince and princess would preside. Now, at the start of the spring, the village would celebrate with its flower festival. Today, the village would open casks of wine from last year's vintage. Tonight, Karina and her friends would go out into the meadow to gather flowers for the festival. The elder ladies would then weave a crown from the flowers, and during the festival tomorrow, it would be placed upon Karina's head. The symbolic purpose of the festival was to welcome greenery and new life to the world after the long winter time. To many in the village, seeing a beautiful young maiden represent the fullness of life was a wonderful sign that the future was bright. In ancient days, it was expected for the Harvest Prince and the Spring Princess to marry, and the entire village would gather after the feast to celebrate their wedding night, fueled by the wine drunk in honor of Dionysus. With the feast being held tomorrow, no one was particularly committed to their work. Corina had come to the well to gather water, but her jug sat unattended while she chatted with two of her friends. They were just making their plans to meet after dinner so they could pick the flowers for tomorrow's crown when they saw a rider coming down the road. He rode a dark horse and was wearing a long black coat with red trim, which they recognized as an Order of the Dragon uniform. When he got closer, the three realized they knew him. It was Dominic. None of the boys in her own village sparked much romantic interest in Karina. She'd known everyone since she was born, and had seen them do so many embarrassing and juvenile things that she just couldn't think of anyone in that way. Her parents had grown up together, so clearly some people managed, but for her, none of the local boys meant much. Dominic Adinu was different. He was from Roshu, a village not far away that they'd traded with often. His father was also a farmer, and his mother made incredible pies. When Karina had been allowed to come along on trips to Roshu, she'd always tried her best to get her father to buy a pie there on the chance it might give her a moment to see Dominic. Tall, with dark hair that always flopped into his face in a way that made him carelessly brush it away, he was everything the local boys weren't. As she watched him riding toward him in his uniform, Corina saw an Adonis. Corina's first kiss had been with the boy, Myron, from her village. It had been awkward, ended quickly, and had it not been her first, would have been entirely unmemorable. Corina's first kiss had been with Dominic. He'd come to deliver some news, and the two had snuck off together. By an oak tree beside the road, they'd embraced and had four or five minutes together before the scattering of some birds had alerted them just in time of the approach of someone whose only reason to be there seemed surely to force them apart. Over the next few years, they'd found times to meet. Corina wished for days, but got, at most, hours when circumstances allowed them to be in the same place together. Once Dominic had come to town, but his father had sent him off to make some deliveries. Corina was able to bribe a friend to do them instead, and the two sat together at the base of a hill out of sight from the farmhouse. Tata will be furious if he finds me here, he'd said. A butterfly landed on Corina's arm, then took off silently. Then we'll be quiet, she said. Quiet as a butterfly. Dominic hadn't protested more. Today, as Dominic approached, Corina was suddenly too shy to say anything. She sat down at the edge of the well and let her friends tease him. Transylvanian superstition held that it was bad luck to encounter a young woman carrying an empty water drug. Of the three, only Adara had actually filled her vessel with water before they started chatting. She tipped its edge to Dominic so he could see it was full and be ensured good luck. 
Every spring, of course, also housed a water spirit, so she let a few drops fall in homage to any Vodnozena living therein before turning her attention to the handsome visitor. Well, look who's all grown up, said Idera. Got a new tailor? asked Liana. Hmm? Oh, the uniform, said Dominic. He dismounted, somewhat awkwardly, but the movement caused his hair to fall in front of his eyes, and that's all Karina saw. He straightened his jacket, rested a hand in his horse, and, eventually, brushed the hair away. Didn't know they gave such fancy get-ups to farmers, said Idera. Is it too late to cast him as Harvest Prince? He has the costume for it, said Liana. Think he can dance, said Idera, sloshing some water toward him in a way that made him jump back. Hmm, too bad. Good thing he's pretty. I joined the Order last year. It's why I'm here, actually, said Dominic. The whole time he'd been looking past the girls to Karina. The uniform made him look broad and confident, but in that moment he was a bashful boy. He opened his mouth and seemed to be about to say something to her, but then closed it and turned to the other girls to speak. Corina was so busy staring at his lips that she realized she'd missed the words that had actually been coming out of them. Coming here personally, tomorrow, to collect the town's tribute. I've just been up to Vatra and Roshu to tell them. Barely time to see Mama and Tata. Villages were required to pay taxes commensurate with the population. This had been true before Hasburg rule and was true now. They were remote and small enough that national politics didn't enter in their lives much, but taxes were a constant. Normally, the elders from nearby villages would take a wagon together and deliver them to the castle. Karina didn't remember Count Dracula ever coming here personally. After a few more words, Dominic rode off to deliver his message, and the rest of the day floated by. Dinner was stew. Karina played with her spoon. Her mind was on the look Dominic had given her over his shoulder as he'd ridden off. Demetria and Jason again told Karina how proud they were that she'd been selected to be the spring princess. It really isn't that big a deal. I wear a dress and then some flowers, said Karina more sharply than she'd intended. She didn't actually mean to be petulant. She was just a bit uneasy about all the attention tomorrow. It all seemed silly now that she knew Dominic might be there. And the Count, would he stay for the feast? She hoped not. It would feel a little embarrassing having him attend their little event. If you'd rather stay home and do chores, I can tell the girls you can't come out, said Demetria. Her mother knew she'd been looking forward to going out with her friends. She didn't know the reason for this sudden teenage shyness, but she guessed correctly that Corina wouldn't actually give up an unsupervised night out. After a minute filled by the clicking of spoons against soup bowls, Corina asked, Why is the Count coming? Has he ever been here before? Don't really know, said Jason. There's been a Dracula in that castle for as long as anyone remembers. He has a right to oversee his land if he wants to. Everything here is his. Why, though? We grow all the food here. Why does he get to just come and take what he wants? Oh, we don't have it so bad, said her father. Some places are constantly having to fight off invaders or have horrible lords forcing their people to go fight for their grudges. We just mostly get to mine our own business. What do we know about him? Is he going to stay for the festival? I don't know, Sprout, said Jason. I guess we'll just have to put on a bigger show if he did. I've never been up to the castle, but lots of people trade there. The Romani who come through are always doing errands for him. Jason refilled his glass, then said, Oh, Dinu's son was around earlier. He's a member of the Order now. You remember him, don't you, Kor? said Demetria. Corina had gotten up to clear the table and turned away to hide that she was blushing. Corina walked over to Idera's house. Then the two got Liana, who had big baskets for collecting all the flowers. Walking out the door, she stumbled, and Corina just managed to catch the baskets before they fell to the ground. Liana's mother didn't see, but called out to ask if they were okay. They were, and, more importantly, so were the bottles of wine the girls had been saving, which were hidden under the blankets in the baskets. South of the town was a huge field that ended with rocky outcroppings, then a vast forest that grew on the mountainside. On the way there, they picked up Krina, Brandusa, Violetta, and several others, until their little group consisted of most of the teenage girls who lived in the village. It wouldn't take very long to pick the flowers for the crown and the centerpieces, but it was one of the few times the girls were all allowed out without chaperones, so they were determined to make it take as long as it could. 
Some of the girls, especially the younger ones, thought of this as a great rebellion, staying out late, drinking wine, and sharing stories and secrets. The reality was all their mothers had done the same thing when they'd been teenagers. Tonight, while their usual gossip went on as always, most of the talk was of Dominic's visit. No one actually knew anything about why the Count might be coming, so naturally everyone was sure of her own theory. The girl strode through the meadow, trading ideas. I heard he's a handsome Habsburg prince who took over the castle. My grandfather thinks a different lord used to live there. No, he's an old man. He's been there for hundreds of years. My uncle said he used to be a warlord in Wallachia who fled here years ago. I think he's come here to claim a maiden as his bride, said one of the girls. Maybe a young spring princess, said another. Everyone laughed and whooped, and Adira gave Corina a shove that was a little too hard. Here's what Nay told me, said Romanita. She was a quiet, slight girl whose older brother had been Harvest Prince two years ago. He said his mother was from Moldavia, but his father was a voivode. They lived in Targovista. His father made a truce with the Turks, and to ensure his loyalty, he had to send his son to go live with the sultan. The sultan mistreated and beat the boy, and when he grew up, he raised an army and slaughtered them all. She then went into a number of bloody details her brother had included mainly to upset her, which in turn brought the whole group down. One girl, a 14-year-old called Kate, who was wearing a fancy headband, seemed particularly upset by it. Of the girls her age, she was one of the few who could read well. After a moment, she said, That can't be. I read about that. There was a Vlad Dracul. He was held prisoner in Urgergaz, but it was in the middle of the 1400s. None of them knew the truth about Count Dracula, but their speculation continued long after they'd stopped bothering to pick flowers. The requisite crocuses, violets, iris blossoms, and hyacinths had been gathered. The baskets were full, the wine bottles were empty, and the stars were out. There was no moon that night in March 1741, but the stars lit the sky enough for them to see. It was getting cooler, so most of the girls were about ready to walk back. Corina was too, but just then she noticed a beautiful crop of white flowers growing near where the rocky terrain started. She told Liana that she'd be right back, but Liana didn't hear her. Corina was so drawn by the beauty of what she'd seen that she didn't notice the others had already left to go home. White the petals were, but in the starlight they looked like they might have been silver, with bits of reddish purple. She thought how beautiful they'd be on her crown, and, after her doubt earlier in the day, realized she really was excited to be the princess tomorrow. She even hoped Dominic would be able to stay for the feast. The white dress her mother had made would go perfectly with the silvery white flowers against her dark hair. As she knelt to pick the flowers, a sweet fragrance seemed to spread over all the land and the wide sky, and Corina was filled with wonder as she reached out with both hands to pick one of the blooms. So entranced was Corina that she didn't hear the clatter of hooves coming from behind her, nor the turning of the wheels. As such, it seemed to her that from nowhere burst a carriage pulled by coal-black horses. Had it come from the berry rocks, from the earth itself? Why had Corina not heard anyone approaching? It bore directly for Corina and stopped abruptly. Its driver, clad all in black, swept down and extended a strong arm, which, in a grip like steel, hoisted her from the ground and into the cabin of the Kaleche. Corina let out a piercing cry, but her friends had all gone. Her abduction was seen only by one girl from the village. Kate, who had straggled behind the rest, ran home to inform the village. The princess of springtime had been taken. When Corina was three years old, her mother had taken her into town on errands, and Corina, distractedly following a butterfly, had wandered off on her own. It wasn't unusual to let children play by themselves, but when Dimitri realized she hadn't seen her in quite some time, she felt immediately hot. So hot she was, she was sure she might be at risk of setting the entire village on fire, or scalding the crops so that nothing might ever grow again until she found her little girl. She asked her friend, Stella, to help look. The two searched for the better part of an hour before discovering Corina sitting in the forest, watching the butterfly. She was sitting in the exact middle of a patch of flowers she'd somehow not disturbed in her way in. It looked as though the flowers had sprung up around the little girl just to make her happy.
Demetria was thinking back on this now as she waited for her daughter to come home from the night's flower gathering, when Stella came running down the road. She was surprised to see her out at night, but the look on her friend's face told her something was wrong. Out of breath, Stella sputtered the news of what her daughter Kate had seen. Before she even finished, Demetria put on a robe and grabbed a torch. She would have searched and raged all over all of Transylvania had she not run into a young Dragon Order guard from Roshu who had been sent to intercept her and deliver a rather peculiar message. 